Welcome to Jeremy's Iron. It's an evidence-based podcast about science, research, and search engines from the 1990s. That's right. <laughs> With me, Justin Lycos. And me, Justin Altavista. I'm glad we have someone who can join us in our anagram game. We take proper names and rearrange the letters to form a description of that person. That is a really great name. <laughs> you are now right. Justin, Justin Alta Vista. It's pretty good, right? It's great. People are like, is that Spanish? I'm like, no, it's um, it's dot com. <laughs> it's, it's web. Um, I've just opened up Lycos and it still exists. Does Alta Vista still exist? Let's have a look. Does web crawler? Do they all? Alta Vista doesn't look like it exists, or it's part of Yahoo Search now or something. But Lycos exists on its own, right? So. I don't know if you remember, but I certainly do. Back when Yahoo was the like the major search engine in like the mid '90s, if you search for something on on Yahoo, once you made your search at the bottom of the page, it would link you to like six other search engines. It was happy to share the search with other people. Interesting. So it would, you could then search through Lycos or Webcrawler or AltaVista. All the buttons were down at the bottom. Yeah. They hadn't worked out that they wanted to keep you on their web page, particularly. <laughs> they were like, oh, "We're just they're here all for friends at the stage. Yeah, at we're the first all here. Stage, yeah." We're here for search. If we can't get it, maybe maybe one of our <laughs> affiliates can. One of our friends. Uh, Was there a search engine that like specialized in searching GeoCities websites? Angel Fire. Well, and there GeoCities? is. I told you there is now, right? I found the I found a GeoCities like cache, and it's no, actually, it's the GeoCities web. If you go to the GeoCities website, you yeah. can search through old GeoCities websites. Right, like all the old pages, they're all, like they banked most of them. They they sort of invented the idea of an animated GIF, or the animated GIF was really popularized. Yeah, in through, those through GeoCities. Yeah, GeoCities yeah. and scrolling marquees and all that kind of yeah, stuff. It's great. <laughs> so, so great. I, I thought they I told so you great. a few weeks ago. I went on a uh, a Grateful Dead website bender. I used to like frequent like GeoCities, Grateful Dead, like retarded web pages back in the 90s <laughs> yeah. and so a few weeks ago when i found out the web crawler had saved all these sites i was going back and finding all these terrible GeoCities grateful dead fan pages with like <laughs> because there's no streaming music it was like midi files so i remember like in like 96 if i wanted to hear a grateful dead song i didn't know or when i wanted to hear again i had to go and listen to the streaming midi files on these websites <laughs> and, so I'd, and, and i'd be like that's not bad. This is pretty. This is pretty sweet jam. You know, I used to write MIDI files for like this phone company. Like this is sort of in fifty when I was what thirteen or fourteen or something. Really? Like, yeah, you know, ringtones and all that yeah, kind of biz. Yeah. I would like program them and give them to them. Back in the day, that was how it, that was how it was done. Like, like was MIDI was, was the that, original was MP3. MIDI tempo rock. rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hi, this is a, a science podcast, and today we're going to be looking at uh, meditation. Yeah. And in particular, the... Mindful meditation. Mindful me Okay, well, we'll be dealing with, perhaps on a small scale, the um, definitional concerns around meditation, mindfulness. Semantics. No, well, that's more than semantics, as we'll find out. Um, but we're going to be looking at the scientific evidence in support of meditation 
and how potentially thin that scientific evidence might be, which is quite or surprising. Or may not be. Or may not be. Spoiler alert, it's actually rather thin. Um, but we- <laughs> Or no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, the, the whole purpose of this episode is to investigate the, the surprising reality that yeah. scientific rigor and research hasn't really been able to definitively back meditation yeah, practices well, in I terms think- of the, the wide range of, of benefits they tend to tout. Yep. The research isn't necessarily... Well, yeah, so it. I so, think that you and I both have dabbled with meditation or similar sort of mindful techniques. Mm-hmm. And I think the benefits of it have, to us seem to be totally self-evident, right? Yep. The same way that the idea of a sun god was self-evident to farmers 10,000 years ago, right? <laughs> yeah. We were like, yeah, no, obviously mindfulness is a great thing for you and it will make you a better person. Yep. The only variable is the commitment to it, right? <laughs> we were like, that's the only thing up for grabs, right? Is how much do you need to meditate to get the, the benefits? I don't think we ever considered the fact that the possibility that it wasn't <laughs> maybe good. And it was uh, a recent other podcast that I heard that made me think, well, wait a minute. Do we actually have evidence for this? Yeah, well, we'll be Do talking. Do we know? Also, is, is it possible that this isn't, <laughs> it's actually really bad that for this us? isn't a true Well, one? interestingly enough, we're going to be talking to, we've got an interview coming up in this show as well. Yeah. Uh, Renaissance tech bro, Dylan Baskin, who's the CEO of Quilla. He's a, an artist of sorts as well. He's a musician general all-round impressive dude who we're going to be talking to about his meditation habit which is pretty it's pretty um significant he does a an hour yeah yeah an hour of meditation a day he'll talk about it hopefully okay he's been doing it for about six six years wow okay impressive um and i'm keen to hear about how it affects him in terms of his kind of high pressure entrepreneurial life around his business but then also around his creativity because we we have a bit of a theory that maybe meditation might not affect one's creativity in the positive ways that it might be um, advertised. And we'll, t- we'll be talking about how meditation affects his creativity. Yep. Very interested to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But from, from the is... outset, I, th- I think I can summarize for both of us that we're both quite pro meditation, mindfulness, and all that kind of stuff, right? Like we, we are. Well, certainly, I... um, I'm curious about it. Mm. Like I, I've given it a fair amount of time in terms of like, you know, respect and thought, yeah, this is probably. Are you psy curious? Like PSY curious then? Definitely. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. But yeah, no, but meditation just seemed to be something that, you know. Hmm. And, and if you listen to, I guess, the anecdotal evidence from people yeah. that meditate, in particular me, like I, I do I do my Tai Chi thing. Yeah. And I can tell you, I can rattle you off a list of benefits sure. that's provided me that I can, I can like feel myself. But the interesting thing is that like, I guess we're quite skeptical of religion for the purpose in the sense that they sort of say like, there's, there's no evidence for it, nor can there be. Yeah. And here I am touting my experiences with Tai Chi and other people yeah. are giving their experiences of meditation, saying yeah. like, you know, you, you can't... It's a subjective thing. It's a subjective it's, it's, thing. It's like faith. It, you have to just... There is a faith element to this. You have which, to experience it. You have to, experiential, you, you have to word, be yeah. touched by the hand of selflessness. <laughs> you have to be, you know, only when you experience the full dissolution of ego can you truly understand the benefits of meditation. And it's a little bit like saying, you know, until you've been blessed by the tears of the Virgin Mary, you'll never understand the power of religion. Yeah. It's like, they're kind of equally ethereal. Anyway, before we get too far into the weeds, shall we talk about some other science and fulfill some promises that were made last week? Such as? Well... We spoke a bit about uh, transplants last week. Oh, yeah. Two weeks ago. And uh, a little bit about the inheritance of personality traits mm-hmm. from the donor to the recipient. 
I don't know if you remember that little conversation. I do remember that conversation. I said, we will come back with with some research on this. And I have, in fact, found some research on this topic. And unsurprisingly, it is thin. (laughs) (laughs) And it seems to be there's a few people out there who are kind of carrying the flag for it. And all their research (laughs) is about, they're like, they are doggedly trying to prove that there is, you know, a real inheritance of, a scientific inheritance of trait, personality. And due to like, you know, uh, chemical feedback loops and like, you know, physiological norms of the old organ that are, you know, tapping into some sort of, uh, um, they, they claim it's, a, it's totally, it's a physiological process. This isn't a psychic phenomena at all. It is like, you know, this organ is used to this sort of thing and it is expressing, you know, those chemical reactions or their needs, their dependency on certain, like, you know, physiological norms is making you crave something or, yeah. you know, or is the brain is tricked into having these kind of emotional feedback loops based on the, uh, the biology of this organ. Interesting. Yeah. So what we have here is we have one the one paper that came out of Quality of Life Research in 1992. Yep. So Quality of Life Research is a journal that it doesn't sound like a particularly rigorous <laughs> journal. <laughs> I don't think it's a medical journal. Is it a pay to play? Is it a shill of of big big transplant a big well, switch? It's 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 Quality of Life. It's people. It's like anecdotal self reported. I can imagine the whole thing would be self reported studies about quality of life. Got you. You know, it's not about science. It's not about chemicals. It's just about like, are people happy or not? Yeah. You know, it's a pretty soft science. And in this paper, they interviewed 47 people who were transplanted. I think they received heart transplants over a period of two years. So 47 people and they were um, interviewed over the course of these two years um, and asked them if they had noticed any personality changes. So we tend to hear about all these people who are like... So, so the transplant happens of... Is it what, what heart transplant? Trans- heart heart transplant, transplant, yeah. And they want to see whether their personality has so they changed. they ask them very simply, have they noticed any change in their personality? Based on the idea that it would probably be coming from the yeah. donor. Like the so, something specific, traits. like you know, you didn't like chocolate and all you can think about is chocolate. Or you're like, yeah. you know, suddenly you're, you're craving, you know... Farsi cuisine when you've never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're from Detroit, you know. You're having visions of a car crash or something like that. Yeah, but. yeah, exactly, right? So the numbers are staggering. 79% of people who'd had a heart transplant. 79% of the 49. 79% of the 47 people. 47, yeah. Right, so 79%. So that's what, 40, 42 people or something. Yeah. Um, but there's a thing in stats where we say, wait, wait, but before, yeah, we, before you are yeah. just like, when you have a number less than 100, yeah. you don't talk about percentages. Because if you think about it, because you're saying of every 100, that's what a percent is, right? Yeah. And you don't have 100. Don't know. You have 47, right? Yeah. So anyway, sorry, continue. So like 42 or something out of the 47 yeah. reported that they had no change whatsoever post-op. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nothing. Okay. Yeah, right. And the conclusion that the author had of this was great. He said, uh, in this group, patients showed massive defense and denial reactions, <laughs> mainly by rapidly changing the subject or or making the question ridiculous. <laughs> so That's incredible. That's yeah, like... Talk about, talk about that's de- your fault that you didn't talk get Talk about any, being yeah. defensive. Yeah. It's like... So someone's gone through a heart transplant, right? They came close to death and, and you say to them, them yeah. do you find yourself craving Jats crackers <laughs> more than you did before? And they say to yeah. you, are you fucking insane? Yeah. <laughs> that's the stupidest question I've ever been asked about my heart transplant. And the guy makes a note, defensive. Yeah. <laughs> Ridicules the question. Honest scientific inquiry challenged. <laughs> So that's amazing. Yeah, that so is an incredible he, conclusion. He undermines 
<laughs> their experience because they undermined his experience. It's great. I've never seen like a study that is belligerent towards the subjects in the actual. I think there's six percent of the patients, three patients in brackets, reported distinct distinct change in personality due to their new hearts. Um, these incorporated fantasies. These are incorporation of fantasies force them to change feelings and reactions and accept those of the donor. Basically he's saying these three patients, this is irrefutable evidence that there is a change and the 80% or 42 patients were just liars. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> and they probably, and they just couldn't deal with the fact. Now, meanwhile, now you would expect if you went through heart failure and had to have a heart transplant, you were living mm. with the heart of another person. It's a fairly significant life-changing event. You know, it's more than a skin knee of your skateboard, right? I would actually expect most of them to have... I wouldn't be surprised if many of them had some change in personality. Either something humili- uh, some humility or some humbleness or some appreciation of life. or Some change because of the... Number one... Like they, were, they were dead or they were going to they die. Were, yeah. They were almost dead on the table. Yeah. You know, they were going to die. And then they're also now on like life. They have to deal with the fact that they're living with a dead person's heart in them. And they're on lifelong anti-rejection medication, which itself will have effects on your personality and your mood and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, so yeah, I would expect... It's actually to a have, testament to the surgery that... That they don't. 42 of them didn't, right? Or like, like, no, I feel fine. I don't yeah. think about it at all. I feel great. So these guys are amazingly well-adjusted, right? Yeah. All things considered. And he's like, these guys are sick puppies. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great. So that gives you that tells you the kind of rag this is and the the well, scientific we'll rigor. Put a, we'll put a reference to this in the show notes. Yeah. If you search for us, Jeremy's Iron, uh, you'll find us if you search us in Google. Yeah. So the uh, the other paper was called "Changes in Heart Transplant Recipients That Parallel the Personalities of Their Donors," um, and this was by Paul Pearsall and Gary E. R. Schwartz. And Schwartz seems to have again a fascination with uh, trying to hunt down these personality changes, and. Again, his thing was based on open-ended interviews of people who'd had heart transplants or heart-lung transplants. And their main outcome measures were just transcripts of their interviews. This is, again, not particularly wow. rigorous. So not even aggregated, just sort of a qualitative analysis. of Yeah, and they found that between two to five parallels were found per case, right. uh, paralleling their experiences and their interests with those of their donors. And he said this evidence is, this is like auspicious and irrefutable evidence that there is something going on. And he says the effects of immunosuppressant drugs, stress of the surgery, and statistical coincidence. So he acknowledges that there are like confounding variables that might cause someone to have change in the personality. Mm. He says these are insufficient to explain the findings. Does he say why they're insufficient? No. No. Statistically, you can test. You can adjust for yeah. those things. Does he adjust for them? Does it no. say that? No. no. He okay. suggests that cellular memory and possibly systemic memory is a plausible explanation for these changes. Oh, look, I, I'm open to it. I, I love the idea, and I think that there's, sure. you know. Yeah. But science often, well, as it turns out, does not always provide you with the evidence that you seek. Now, in other transplant news, all the news I found this week was, I started looking at this transplant stuff, and then I started seeing it everywhere, yeah. right? We spoke a little bit last week about your microbiome, right? Was it last the, week or what? Well, two weeks ago, whatever it was, yeah, last show. Yeah. You mentioned your uh, your gut flora, right? <laughs> yeah, I laid it all on the line. Yeah, you did. No, you you were an open stomach for <laughs> yeah, us, right? Yeah. I read you like an open gut. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and have you heard about when were you at FBI? How long ago now? What years? FBI Radio, local yeah. community radio station here in Sydney, ninety four point five FM. Um, probably from about two thousand and six to two thousand and twelve. 
Okay. So would you have overlapped with local band um, Boy and Bear? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Are you familiar with Dave Hosking, lead singer of Boy and Bear? Uh, I probably met him at some point, but... Right. Well, sometime after their uh, meteoric success, mm-hmm. um, ending in around 2014, they've been on hiatus for the last four years. Yep. Because Dave Hosking has had a period of illness. Hmm. Where he's been, he's had all kinds of, all the problems we've kind of discussed before, right? He was, you know, he had bowel problems and mood problems, depressed. Um, and he was diagnosed, um, ultimately, at the end of these four years, with dysbiosis. And what is that? So, biosis is kind of referring, I guess, to the biome. Mm-hmm. And dys means sort of out of whack. So, basically, he's got a really shitty microbiome okay. in his stomach. Causing him to have all kinds of gut issues and diarrhea and, you know, whatever else. Not treated by antibiotics. He's tried probiotics. And he said his life was a living hell. Wow. This time, right? Until someone showed him an ultimate solution. Fecal transplants. No. So he... Wow. So, so someone got so, their poop yeah. transplanted into his pooper. That's, that's right. And in fact, he has such a bad case that he didn't... He couldn't just have a single dose where they cleaned him out and gave him someone else's poop to sort of reconstitute his gut flora, he's had to have daily fecal transplants. Wow. And he's been told it'll be six months to a year of daily transplants for him to turn over his gut. This sounds very alternate, like alternative in terms of... Uh, he was diagnosed by is this a Dr. Shaman? Karen Phelps. What? Member of parliament or whatever she well, is. Well, no longer, or, but she was... Yeah, 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 yeah. So one professor, Karen Phelps, was the, was the savior that diagnosed him. Goodness. And he's been seeing a transplant, poo transplant specialist and so he's been doing that and saying he feels great. He feels so much better ever since. In fact, he actually has his own private fecal donor who is on standby, who delivers poop to him on a daily basis Wow! in his mailbox so he can get fresh poop. And he, um, he has to deliver it to himself via enema. Every day? Every day. And he's felt so good, in fact, that they're back on tour this year. They got a new album out. Wow. They're back on tour. And he th- thought... Wow. I can't wait to hear that the songs that come out of this <laughs> <Yeah>. experience. <laughs> it's going to be a shitty record. Uh, oh easy, right? Oh, my God. That was Sorry. too good. Yeah. Uh, but he, uh, he said, so in order to go on tour, though, right, he can't. He has to maintain his constant uh, supply of fresh poop. So he actually That's has... That's an interesting writer, isn't so it? He, so he's got, <laughs> he's, got a, he's got a poo roadie. And so the guy that's no. been delivering him his poo every day... He's offered to pay him to come on tour with them, and he is now with them on tour, wherever they go. So he's just there to provide feces to him on a daily basis. Wow. So that he can stay functional and active. This is fantastic. Right? I love this. This is an incredible yeah. story. So that's real. So this is, this is you know, we've got music, we've got biome, we've got fecal transplants, all in one story, right? <laughs> yeah. oh this God. is real. And this is, a, and, you know, this is Jeremy's Iron. This is the, this the, is, yeah, so, the story that ties together yeah. all of our episodes up until this point. Can we put in... Um, Anything to do with turmeric in the episode? Does he also drink No, tumeric? but we can also actually incorporate some other, another previous topic we had because I found another paper that came out in this last week um, where they looked at... We'll make it quick. I want to talk meditation. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, we'll go. No, but look, no, we're slow playing. We've got information, man. It's an exciting <laughs> world out there. Okay. So we've spoken a bit about, obviously, uh, the person, uh, the mood and personality changes that your gut can have, right? Yep. And now kind of having your gut out of whack and maybe through probably some... Vegas or phrenic nerve activation maybe have something to do with you know the brain and whatever else. Well, for a long time, people have noticed that um, children with autism mm. have gut problems. A high percentage of them have symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. Yep. And irritable bowel syndrome um, is associated with this dysbiosis, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a theory that maybe there's a connection between the gut biome and autistic 
symptoms, mm-hmm. right? Is this the, the gut-brain axis? I feel like we need Absolutely. to do a show on the gut-brain we axis. We probably That's... should. This is getting pretty interesting, right? Yep. So what they did was they took a bunch of mice, normal mice, mm-hmm. that had no problems, and did the reverse. They gave them a fecal transplant from kids, humans, oh. with autism. Interesting. Right? So what they did is... Can you cross tra- species tra- like that with the poop transplant? Yeah, because they're, they're just they're, they're what they're doing is there's the bugs. It's just the, oh, it's the it's, bugs. That's right. Yeah, it's the bugs. They're in the poop. So they gave the poop to the to the mice, and then so these are normally behaving mice. Nothing special about them. And a percentage of them started to I think like a high percentage of them showed features of autistic behavior after having the gut trust. So they they weren't showing that they could cure autism with normal poop. But they showed that they could recapitulate some of the symptoms of autism with autistic poop. Wow. Right? Which suggests that there could be something to do with the gut, or at least treating the gut could have some modifiable uh, It's a real flora effect. situation. Yeah, right? And so, you know, the animals started to show like sort of um, insular behavior mm. and sort of repetitive behavior and all this kind of stuff where the other animals are just kind of socially normal and whatever else. Mm. And that was reversed when they gave them back a normal uh, poop biome. Mm. Interesting, right? Very interesting. Well, we need to make this a full show. I need to do I a show so. on transplants and we need to do a show on the gut well, think, brain axis. Yeah. But I feel like we should get into our main topic, which is going to be on meditation. In particular, looking at one piece of research that came out originating from Melbourne. So this, Is that where it's from? That yeah, paper? this guy's, this guy's from that. Melbourne. Van Damme. His last name's Van Damme. And he's great. From- I know Van Damme. Shout out to uh, Jason Van Damme, scrub mm. nurse at... Um, Gosford District Hospital. Well, the article we're going to be talking about uh, is called Mind the Hype, a critical evaluation and prescriptive agenda for research on mindfulness and meditation. Was it also, was it, were Chuck D, uh, was he one of the, at Terminator X, were they co-authors? <laughs> what, what? I don't get it. Oh, don't believe the hype? Yeah, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> What's the name of my DG? Terminator X. Yeah, good. <laughs> What's the name of my statistician? <laughs> Terminator, <laughs> Terminator X. X. Let's go to a break and we'll come back okay. with some mindfulness and meditation. Okay, so uh, the main focus of this episode is uh, an article. It's by Nicholas Van Dam, who's out of the University of Melbourne. and U of M. He joins a cohort of about, four, I think, 14 other scientists who are concerned principally that uh, there's a bit of hyperbole that accompanies the mindful movement. Is that an academic gang? That's pretty cool, right? I, that's true. Yeah, well, 15 people, that's quite a lot. All ganging up on, like, a concept. That's pretty cool. Mm. Well, they're not ganging up on them. And like, I think he, he's at pains to say that he is not against the concepts of meditation yeah. and mindfulness. Um, this term mindfulness meditation is used here, but I think we'll have to get into the, like, what is mindfulness and what is meditation. We'll see if we can... Sure. The paper, in fact, touches on all that because that's part of the problem. Essentially, mindfulness meditation is now a huge... It's a huge industry, right? So yeah. apparently it's a $1.1 billion industry in the US alone. And they're concerned that the, the there are all these articles and everything... Um, yeah. touting an insane number of benefits for sure. 
meditation. In fact, I just if you that just Headspace type into Google, app is doing really well right Headspace, now. And, right? and the Sam Harris app is doing well. A friend, uh, well, a friend of the show, Cassandra, wrote in to say she uses the um, Headspace app, and she's mm-hmm. been doing so for the last not, not not Headspace, sorry, the Sam Harris. Oh, so she's on the Sam up. app. She's on, Interesting. Yep, okay. on the Sam app. Yep. Um, and if you look online and look for like you know mind, evidence for mindful meditation or whatever there'll be these articles that'll say you know 20 scientific reasons to start meditating today and 12 science-based benefits of meditation and all this kind of stuff and i'll read you out some of these it's like increases immune function decreases pain decreases inflammation at the cellular level Mm -hmm. um, increases positive emotion Mm -hmm. decreases depression anxiety stress makes you more compassionate less lonely Regulates your emotions, able yeah. to introspect, so, imp- increases great. Like it, it goes on and on. Like the authors of this paper said, it's become a sort of a panacea, right? That's right. And so they're saying, look, we got, got nothing against it. It's like turmeric. Yeah, we got nothing against it. But like with most other things, we need scientific evidence. Yeah. And surely, if these are the benefits of meditation, we yeah. should be able to tease this out. And absolutely, where is the evidence? And speaking of turmeric, what did we learn from the turmeric episode? Uh, more things that a it's kind of panacea touts to uh, to help. Yeah. Statistically, the less less effective it actually is. That's right? true. So the, the thing that claims to be able to cure fifty nine things usually can't cure but anything any of them, at that's all. Right. right. That's that's the correlation. So. But I guess I guess the other part of this is that it also has to do with included therapies in public health insurance and stuff. Yeah. Now you're starting to see a lot of this. I guess a, a medical level. For the whole state, etc. Sure. Um, also, in schools, you've got various schools now giving kids, like committing kids to sort of doing five five minutes a day of meditation. You're like, okay, yeah. that's that's pretty at worst harmless, and at best could be an, an incredible thing for the kids, right? So yeah. you've got nothing against it. But you'd think if you start instituting these on a you know yeah on a level of schools and kids, you'd want to see some scientific evidence to support yeah. some. And of these you know things. what? So this just occurred to me now. It's amazing that I've known of meditation and have been practicing in some form for 15 or 20 years, right? Maybe more. Mm. Uh, and I've never really questioned it. Like we said at the top of the show, the only question I had about it was, was I committed to it enough to get the benefits out of it? Mm. But meditation, as we know it, the mindfulness meditation that we practice or we hear about, and especially yours, the Tai Chi, it's an Eastern medicine or an Eastern spirituality concept, right? Yep. And what, one of our first episodes was on acupuncture, right? Which people have taken for granted as being effective forever to the point where it is on private insurance exactly. schemes yeah, yeah. And, and the, the same and the thing evidence is and, the evidence there for it not and, necessarily exactly and most people assume it does and we did that we did the research and we found that no in fact there's nothing to it and that eastern medicine in general has no scientific underpinnings to it and yet we've always been very accepting of meditation. Meditation is sort of a wing of all of that in a way, especially given what it claims to do. Mm. And the more critical I am now looking at it, I'm thinking, why are we given it this exceptionalism? Is it maybe not exactly the same thing as acupuncture and like um, all the other Eastern medicine phenomena that we have sort of debunked? It's quite possible. Uh, but I think what this paper is about to do, and we'll get into it now, yeah. um, is that they're saying that there's methodological issues with actually trying to tease out effects yeah. from studies of meditation. So it's much harder than say acupuncture. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to accurately reflect, okay, who's actually meditating properly? Yeah. Who's not? How do you assess the outcomes from these? Like it's self-reported scales. Exactly. Anxiety, depression, and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And acupuncture is easy, right? Because you can give sham acupuncture and real acupuncture and you compare the outcomes, right? Yeah. We don't know if everyone is receiving sham meditation if they're not doing it right. Yeah. You just don't know, right? 
and there's some really interesting ironies as well. And I, I was yeah. talking to someone last night who, who kind of um, opened my mind up to this potential just... Um, there's, there's a vexed issue with studying meditation in the first place. And we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Really quite I, I know you're going, going with that. Yeah. Um, so as a society, we're jumping on this bandwagon saying, yes, meditation, yes, mindfulness. You'd want to see yeah. scientific evidence. and Some rigor. That's right. So yeah. you, you've read the paper as well. Yep, I read the paper. What, what did you kind of get from it? Oh, well, firstly, it's it's a massive paper. It's super meaty. Yeah. Um, and their skepticism, yeah, it comes from the fact that it is a very difficult thing to study. Mm. Right? It is a very... Meditation in itself and mindfulness is a super nebulous concept. And it is... It's crippled by, number one, what is mindfulness? Multiple definitions of mindfulness. Number two, even if you can settle on uh or some definitions of mindfulness how do you then create a structure for a study that is effective mm. that is objective in terms of studying it um and on top of that how do you even tease out the varying degrees of commitment to it like you know cursory meditation someone just sitting in a room and and humming to themselves versus a 30-year practitioner of uh you know a monk from the himalayas who has been you know can completely lose his ego for three years at a time like, how do you tease those guys apart and put them in different groups? And mm. how do you appreciate them objectively? And then um, administer mindfulness as a treatment for various conditions absolutely. as well. And then, that, and then on top of that, once you even you work out your methodology for working out if someone is mindful, which is already almost impossible, what are your outcome measures? What are you checking on? Are you checking on something instantaneous in terms of their blood pressure or their heart rate? Mm. Are you measuring serotonin levels? Are you looking at their success in life 10 years down the track? Or are you looking at self-reported anxiety scales at the end of the week? Hmm. Like those are three completely different outcome measures. And the validity, well, each of them is really, really hard to measure. So well, let me that's hold what I got. This is a, just a, it's a tiger trap. Absolutely. And let, let me hold you on the first issue sure. to start with, which is what is mindfulness and meditation? And there's, there's various religious and secular contexts in which mindfulness and meditation are kind of you know, put forward. Mm -hmm. um, and they've said here that one of the most thoughtful and frequently invoked definitions, so this is kind of, I guess, common to most, if not all of these mindfulness and meditation definitions, um, is that mindfulness is moment to moment awareness cultivated by paying attention in a specific way in the present moment as non-reactively, non-judgmentally and open-heartedly as possible. And this comes from a guy called John Kabat-Zinn. Have you heard that name? No. Um, huge player in the in the game of mindfulness. I, th I could be wrong, and listeners can correct me, but I think yeah. he actually invented the term or the concept of well, mindfulness okay. in its, I guess, mod more modern context. Right? Yeah. Um, again, correct me if I'm wrong. I think I might have picked that up from a blog somewhere, so could easily have been incorrect. Blogs are good evidence. But what he did prescribe, and this is from the, I think it might have been the 80s or something like that, mindfulness-based stress reduction. MBSR is something that yeah. he's kind of initiated as mm -hmm. an alternative to more active interventions for a lot of this stuff. Sure. Well, more chemical-based interventions for a lot of yeah. um, disorders of that kind. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the 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 overlap. The, in the middle of the Venn diagram of all the definitions of mindfulness and meditation, you have this idea of paying attention in the present moment, mm -hmm. trying to be non-reactive, non-judgmental, um, and open-hearted. Those, those yeah. are the kind of... But it is about focus at the same time, right? Yes. And so I think this is where we have, we have to make a distinction between what is meditation and mindfulness versus what is a flow state. You might have heard that term flow yeah. state before. Yeah. 
And we've discussed this as to whether you're, because you, you do a lot of design work and when and, you're- and, Or fabrication work, like things like that, yeah. And, and we've often discussed whether, are you meditating when you're actually creating stuff and you're so in the moment, you're yep. creating whatever you're, you know, yep. you're modeling. And you lose sense of time and self and you seem to just be doing, not sort of, you know, yep. you're I executing. Would, I would say that's not meditation or mindfulness in the way that this is intended. Like this that's is a flow an, state, that's yeah. different. This is more of a pay, an active paying attention as opposed to just, because te- you, you could describe what you were doing as distraction as well, like just being fully distracted if you want to play semantics about the word distraction yep. here, you can, but you're, you're fully involved in this stimulus that's in front of you, right? Yeah. So you're, you're not aware of your thoughts that are happening at the time. Like that's obviously, it's an amazing experience to be in that flow state. Yeah. But I think we have to distinguish that between the mindfulness we're talking about. That's a really here. good point. Sure. Yeah. So the first thing that it says is that the, the studies that have gone before have had almost zero consistency with that definition and the way they're testing people's the exposure or the intervention, which is the mindfulness component. So there are these things called psychological distancing, um, decentering and inhibitory control, non-conceptual discriminatory awareness, acceptance and reintegration and focused attention, decentering and meta-awareness. So there are all these different kind of scientific ways of trying to determine one's mindful state. Yeah, their their use of attention. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And so this paper actually deals with all of those. And we're not, we're not going to go into the, the meat of those particular types. But this I mean, paper- think about that, right? Like, you know, the, the, there's a spectrum from being totally focused, like you're in an exam and you're focused on those questions and, and that answering, right? That's one extreme of focus, right? Yeah. I, I think it's rare to be more focused than that. Um, and then your other extreme is lying on the lawn, completely daydreaming, lost in 60 thoughts, yeah. right? And then there's an entire spectrum in between. How do you normally distinguish all those definitionally in a way that is that is useful. I mean, that's yeah. what these guys are talking about. That's right. With all those words, right? Each of those different words is a way of describing each of those different states from being a little distracted, mostly focused. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's crazy, right? And then you got, you got to do some chunking within that. And Is that effective? Yeah. Like, even if you can define them, I don't even know if that's going to be particularly useful. But anyway, yeah. Well, that's it. So, so the idea is that it, the, the measurement component is almost impossible. Well, very, yeah. very difficult to do. Yeah. Um, and most of the studies use, utilize self-questionnaires, right? So mm. it, it brings up this issue of construct validity. Have you heard of the term construct validity? No, I, I read it in the paper. Tell me what it is. Yeah, I should, I should know. I was going to ask you because I was hoping you'd be able to... Um, it's basically like, does the thing, the measurement process, does that reflect what it's trying to measure? Sure. Uh, that's what I would have guessed along those lines. Yeah, so it's kind of like... Asking someone, did you concentrate on your breath, for example? Yeah. And they would say, mm, yes, I did or no, I didn't. Like, is that measurement, asking them if they concentrated on their breath, yeah. actually a measure of whether they concentrated on their breath or not, right? Or, or is it or is it a surrogate marker of mindfulness? Doesn't necessarily mean that it is, right? That's right. Yeah, and so I, in the paper, and when they mentioned this construct validity, they talked about... Um, you know, trying to improve their objective measures of mindfulness. And some of the papers that had the seemed to be the most valid, at least, were the ones that used breath counting because it was an actual number that could be reported, right? Right. And, but the question remains, sure, that gives you a number, which is better than a questionnaire, right? Because it's more objective than that. Mm. But does it mean anything? What, what's the, what's the, what is the correlation between 
breath count and mindfulness. Exactly right. Yeah. And that's the whole point. That's the whole construct. So even if you can get a number, find something objective about it, you mm. may actually be sort of teasing yourself out of your actual research question with it. That's right. And there would be this conflation as well between being mindful mm. and your desire to be mindful, right? So like mm. if you were someone that really like believed in it and you were like, I want to be mindful and whatever, and you were doing your whatever mindful practice and you were asked like were you you know were you particularly mindful during that or whatever um you, you could say yes but it could be just an indication of your your desire to be mindful as opposed to the level of mindfulness you're experiencing during that practice right yeah. um so th- there's these curious like really curious um paradoxes with all of this stuff right like for example if you're making online judgments about the degrees of mindfulness it requires some kind of multitasking which negates the which whole purpose the actual mindfulness. of mindfulness right yeah. like so if you can essentially if you can track how mindful you were then you, you weren't very mindful at all right yeah. and um like i said to you a couple of days ago when we discussed this briefly you'd be like asking someone for an objective measure of how long they, they were asleep for hmm. and if you if you can tell me accurate the more accurate you are with how long you can tell me you were asleep the less chance you were that you were actually sleeping. That's right. Right. Essentially what happens in other studies, like for example, this this is a problem. Construct validity is also an issue with intelligence Mm -hmm. as well, right? So um, what they... Yeah, they mentioned that. I remember reading that part. Yeah. yeah. So to assess someone's intelligence, we have these proxies, right? You can't just say, okay, you're, you're X intelligent and I'm... X plus three intelligent or whatever, yeah. right? Like we can't say that. Oh, are you automatically? Oh, really? Oh, that's why you snuck that in. Oh. Yeah, we'll just go. I'll, go to, I'll just go along with that. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll accept the premise of this. Uh. But so what they do is they create this a test called IQ, or sort of they do rational tasks. You can kind of through those proxies assess someone's intelligence. So the idea is, can we develop proxies for mindfulness? Right? Can, yeah. can we say you're this mindful because you can? Um, and, and the way that they can kind of assess some of this stuff is assessing people's change in say eating patterns mm-hmm. um, or interpersonal exchanges or that kind of thing. So, yeah, but so it, they talk about asking like third parties, like spouses, for example, Yes, about behavioral changes. And that's probably more valid than asking you your personality change because you are more likely to report the changes expected with meditation. Yes. Um, if you're asked, because you're first, you want to be a responder to meditation, right? Mm. But you want to ask someone's wife, like, are they more irritable? Do they use the toilet more or less? And she'd be like, no, he's like the same asshole he was last week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's just a really irritating asshole now that goes around meditating all the time. <laughs> Talking about <laughs> mindfulness. <laughs> no? Yeah, so you can see it's just it's riddled with all these it's kind so, of so problems of yeah. trying to assess. Um, and so, yeah, so there, there is some um, decent evidence that so neuroimaging data suggests that there's modest changes in brain structure as a result of practicing mindfulness or practicing meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, however, this is the other problem. It's like, well, you can get similar changes and they've been observed through other forms of physical and mental skill acquisition, like learning to play a musical instrument, mm-hmm. learning to reason. Um, and so... Sudoku. We have to find... Well, that's right, Sudoku. We have to find a way of assessing what was it the, the actual element of mindful practice yeah. that caused the benefit yeah or was it just being engaged in a new activity skill acquisition what, we have to tease focus about, of any sort like that's you know, right. prolonged focus what is it that actually creates this benefit and this is why it's just yeah is meditate amazing. Like, the question is yeah is mindful meditation an exceptional skill or is it a one of many pathways to 
you know, brainwave modification or, you know, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, that's it's a really important question, right? And when we finish this, I want to talk about sort of takeaway conclusions. And I'll, I'll tell you what my takeaway all, with all this was. And that mm-hmm. ties into it very deeply. Um, but yeah, it's so hard to construct a study that is valid. And I looked through PubMed before we did this, you know, to do a bit of research and you know, type in, you know, effectiveness in meditation. And essentially, like you said at the top of the show, every single hit you get is meditation um, is good for this. Meditation produces positive effects for this. Meditation greater than get it for this. And as you look through, you're like, well, this is overwhelming. It's all good. Mm. And maybe some of these may not be particularly valid, but in essence, it's only a good thing and probably not a bad thing. And I'm like, oh, well, case closed. Not much more to talk about with this. And I, in fact, because it's so overwhelmingly good that you do sort of cast aside your critical thought. And you're mm. like, well, I don't need to be critical because this is just so overwhelmingly good. That's right. You know? And then you read this and you're like, oh, shit, I was really being, I was being pretty complacent with that, uh, with that estimation. Yeah, yeah. How good it is. This is maybe. Com- this is basically confirmation bias run rampant. But I mean. Uh, t- t- totally. And I was, I was not as skeptical. Even going in, trying to be skeptical. I found myself not as skeptical as I was about acupuncture or turmeric or any of the other things we've spoken about, you know? Yeah. Because um, there's this implicit understanding that meditation must be good. And I guess because on a very personal kind of microscopic level, we all know that slowing down, taking deep breaths calms you down. So we understand the idea of focusing your energy hmm. your, or your thoughts. And I think and, we- like, and you think, well... The principle, the foundation of that is sound. I've experienced that. We all have. Everyone says, take a deep breath. And I think there are studies also, I mean, fairly convincing that stress levels and, you know, that causes a whole raft of physical problems. And yeah. and so you can kind of go from, well, if we can calm down using this process, mm. we can stop all the problems that occur due to high levels of stress and cortisol yeah. and all this. Yeah. And also, and we know that there's, like we said before, there's different things that could be measured with this, right? So in a very small window, um, if you are taking deep breaths and you're being mindful for five minutes in a period of high stress, if you have an anxiety problem, and a lot of the research is about people with anxiety issues, um, if you control your breath and you breathe deeply and you stop yourself from hyperventilating, you will calm down, right? If you hyperventilate, you'll work yourself up into like a fright or flight situation and that's just gonna potentiate your anxiety. So there's a very simple physiological reason why taking deep breaths will improve your anxiety in the short term. But that's not meditation. That's just breath control. Mm. And that's a big difference, right? So to write in our paper saying that med- mindful meditation improves anxiety in the short term, that's what we were saying about sort of contract validity. We're not necessarily talking about mindful meditation at all. You're talking about breath control. And, and this is, what, yeah, exactly. And, and, and very different to someone, again, who can lose their sense of self over the course of an hour of meditation and completely leave their body functionally and seeing what that does. I mean, those are two totally different phenomena, which may have both have positive mm. effects but you could be talking about entirely different phenomena and what what you would have to do in a study to tease apart whether it was the breathing or whether it was the mindful component is you're going to have to sit people down and be like okay so you're going to be our controls yeah. you're just going to breathe and whatever you do yeah don't be mindful like don't focus on well, i guess you, you just know, wouldn't tell them anything about it right that's right you'd have to but, be just as, as vague as you could Okay, and then as specific as you could with the other group. I think that's yeah. that's the only way I think you could do it. But then, and then, what do you measure? Like how long they're not anxious for? Do you measure the pattern of their breaths and when they start to hyperventilate again? Like, did they get five minutes of reprieve versus an hour of reprieve? 
I don't even know how to structure mm. a study like that that's valid. It's really, really tough. Mm. Um, well, let, let me posit to you what was what was given to me last night by a friend I had a drink with in the early hours. Um, there is something antithetical about... Well, this, this is her conjecture, right? Yeah. There's something potentially antithetical about assessing mindfulness and meditation in a scientific way. Like she was taken aback when I said we were doing a podcast about the you know, the scientific evidence around meditation. She was like, yeah. well, that she sort of bridled and was like, wait, these are two separate things for me. Like there's the science world and there's also the sort of my meditation experience. And part of me straight away was like, this is very a very religious kind of... Absolutely, totally, yeah. yeah. Um, but by the end, she kind of sold me on the idea that when it's almost in trying to pin down some kind of expected outcome from meditation, like if you're trying to expect some kind of anxiety reduction or whatever mm. and you tell someone going into meditation this is what you should be trying to achieve that actually undoes a lot of what meditation is about like the, the great principle behind meditation is you should not be aiming to do it for anything you should be trying to lose your you know essentially lose your sense of self and yeah. it shouldn't be a directed activity okay, to so achieve an outcome right I'm, I'm totally with that because I was thinking the same thing which was are we looking at the wrong thing? Do we need to expect meditation to be almost pharmacological in its, you know, in its effect? Well, this is this is her argument, right? Like, and this also goes back to what we talked about about travel a few weeks ago, when I was trying to convince you of the merits of traveling, right? Which is that, you know, when I first started meditating, or my early experiences, actually, any of my experience meditating, I'm not an anxious person. I haven't got depression. I don't really suffer from any of these psychological ailments. That it's purporting to fix so when i'm looking through this paper saying that well it's not particularly good for for uh you know for depression or anxiety or we don't have the evidence for it, it doesn't really bother me actually because i personally don't care about it fixing those things i never really thought it did my so interest was it, it yeah. was when people like sam harris talk about the trip you go on with it right the the sense of again the dissolution of ego where it can take you, things you can learn about yourself, things you can learn about consciousness, you know, trying to unravel the mystery of what's in our head and kind of what that, mm. what that sort of symbiosis is. And that's not a, the only benefit of that is intellectual. It's cognitive. I just want to know. I mm. want to see what's on the other side of that, right? And I don't expect those answers to provide me any physiological benefits in my life or psychological benefits. No better than learning about the... Um, jet engine a few weeks ago right i just want to know how that works well it's interesting because i i do i mean i do tai chi which is yeah. my own sort of mo movement based yeah. meditation if you want to call it that and i do it for a particular reason an absolute like directed reason which is to mm. reduce my levels of stress and yep. and it's interesting that in in talking to my friend last night i was like there's obviously something i'm missing because the whole purpose of the uh, of the exercise is not to aim at some particular outcome, right? Yeah. It's not a tool. Meditation, we're, we're trying to assess it as a tool, mm. but to describe it as one is actually missing the point of what meditation may, is about. That's exactly. So that may be, I think that's what it comes down to, right? As long as it's not harmful, it doesn't take anything away from me. Yeah. It's like going on a nice drive somewhere, right? Like you don't expect, necessarily expect that going on a nice drive through the countryside is going to improve your anxiety or fix your um, your schizophrenia or whatever else. You might just really enjoy that hour in the car. Yeah. You know, and you might just see some beautiful things and learn some things that you didn't know before. And if meditation can provide that, that's what I want to know. 
so I, I guess the, the vexed issue that I referred to earlier is that we can say all this stuff, yeah. but then when it starts being prescribed, you, you kind of do need to see like evidence, right? Like even people that are, are, are very much pro meditation mm-hmm. and, and kind of see it in a way that it's not a tool. You're not meant to be kind of using it to get out of things or whatever. It, the whole purpose is to kind of yeah. lose your ego and all that. Um, they would still suggest it to people and be like, oh, you, you're feeling anxious. You, you've got depressive symptoms, yeah. or whatever. Try meditation because that can help you with that. And it's kind of this contradiction in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like we know that there are benefits of meditation incrementally mm-hmm. before you re- achieve complete oneness or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, so that early stage before of- Before you achieve nirvana. Before you achieve nirvana, there are still benefits to be gained. And I, I feel like that's where I'm at. Like I'm yeah. getting many benefits from uh-huh. my practice, but- I'm clearly not in quote unquote there. So I think the conversation kind of just needs to accept that. Yeah. We're not talking about meditation to its ultimate goal of being completely one with the universe. We're talking about the initial stages of meditation, which is, I guess what most people are going to get to most people in the modern world with all of its distractions and trappings. So that's what we should be assessing for our, scientifically rigorously right like mm-hmm. the focusing on the breath the monitoring the your truth thoughts. claims of of meditation yes right that's right so i think we can we can distinguish the uh, the end goal of meditation versus from the, the, the intervention which is the initial phase of the meditation do you know what i mean well as well as just the intrinsic experience of meditating right the 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 benefit of just enjoying yourself for that time or getting something out of it, again, from a cognitive perspective, not from a personality or a psychological perspective, mm. right? Again, it's like if I said to you, this may be a bit of a long bow. I was like, dude, the, that is in, contrary to all expectations, orange juice, no benefits for you whatsoever over right. water, nothing. doesn't do anything for you over water. Would you be like, well, that's it. Never drinking orange juice again. again. Yeah, it's yeah. like, well, no, but do you like it? Yeah. You just keep drinking it. It's yeah. not bad for you. It's fine. <laughs> it's just not going to cure your cancer mm. and it's not going to fix your anxiety. It's just orange juice and it tastes good. <laughs> you know, it's a good way to explore the wonderful, you know, journey of citrus. <laughs> um, and I think that's my think what I've come away with from this is uh, not over intellectualizing what people expect out of it and mm. using other people's expectations of it as a metric or a yardstick for what I would get out of it. Mm. We do something different, right? I'm with you. Also, you know that it... um, Did you read the part about the adverse effects associated with meditation? Um, No, actually. It wasn't... wasn't So the article talks a lot about how it's why it's hard to measure, why it's hard to come up with outcome measures. Mm. And then you can kind of say, well, look, fine. Like we were just saying, all things being equal. If it's like OJ, you know, fine. We may not be able to measure what it does. And Mm. we may not be sure it does anything good. But you know what? If it seems to help people, like acupuncture... Let them do it. You can't hurt you. In fact, unlike acupuncture, you're not going to get infections. You're not going to poke anything dangerous. It's just sitting there thinking. No worries, right? Yeah. Wrong. Because they say, well, what if it does have adverse effects? Well, then would people people be so cavalier to recommend it as even adjunct therapy with something else, right? Because right now, it's pretty low cost. Look, try try meditating. What do you got to lose? It'll keep you out of trouble, if nothing else, right? Yeah. Well, they did find, in fact, it seemed to... Um, there's a, there is a an incidence of meditation induced psychosis mm. and which initially you're like well why would it cause psychosis it should just calm you down well when you think about it 
people talk about meditation as being a sort of a surrogate for like a hallucinogen, right? Like an LSD type experience, mm-hmm. which is LSD can sort of, again, make you completely lose your sense of self and drop your ego and all that kind of stuff. It's a bit of a shortcut. And then people have talked about doing that. I've heard many people talk about the idea of abandoning um, psychotropic medications and trying to find that same experience with meditation. Well, the reason why they can do that and, and come up with a facsimile of that experience is because it ultimately works through very similar mechanisms, right? Which is, we you know, that LSD causes like surges in serotonin and we've measured people who have meditated and many studies have generally found that it causes an increase in serotonin, right? So there's no reason to expect that. If you, th- if you can do something that gives you the same effect as LSD, and we know that for some people who are primed for it, LSD can trigger psychosis, right? And send people to the, to the loony bin. Um, well, why wouldn't something else? It's just a different means of getting to that same chemical endpoint, mm. right? It's just an endogenous way of doing it instead of one that drops it into you, right? Mm. Um, and in fact, when you take LSD, LSD doesn't give you serotonin. LSD just releases the serotonin that you have already, right? So, which is all the meditation would do. It would allow you to release more of that serotonin. And it's the same thing, just a different way of doing it. Um, so there's no reason to think that it wouldn't be potentially as dangerous if you're able to actually do it effectively. Hmm. So it's something that has to be measured with the respect, right? Which is that it's all fine if you don't do it properly. But for those who are actually able to tap into the powers of mindfulness appropriately, hmm. and it's, it is actually a dangerous thing. Well, well also... Or it can be. Particularly um, our producer, Rusty, yeah. has uh, was telling me of a friend of his that did a Vipassana, which is one of those 10-day sure. silent retreats. Yeah. And is dealing currently still with the the fallout from his experience wow. in doing that. Like he, it was quite harrowing for him, the mm-hmm. idea of spending, That trip? Well, yeah, he spent whatever, nine, 10 days. So a Vipassana is a 10-day silent retreat yeah. where essentially you meditate 12 hours of the day. Mm-hmm. I, I've tried it and I lasted about two or three days and I couldn't... Which I think is amazing, by the way. Uh, it was definitely not amazing, but I, I, I couldn't deal with it. And I can totally sympathize with the idea of it driving you absolutely crazy if i pushed through to like yeah three four five six days i don't know where i potentially could have ended up right on I'd the pull, street I'd, well either i was going to break through something and achieve what they're yeah presenting to me what, what you have to do i mean they, they tell you you have to push through the discomfort right yeah. um and it was very uncomfortable but on the other side there are people that have certainly been very negatively affected by um the fight for passion so that yeah. it, it is in some ways controversial despite the fact that a lot of people get amazing you now know, i believe that because that. you and i about six years ago tried something for a weekend which i'm still dealing with the after effects of the consequences <laughs> we tried to stop swearing for a whole weekend <laughs> oh, that's true and that and so and that is a that was a, a mindful experience yeah. right and i am still have like a stutter <laughs> at times or a, 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 a this conditioned response where i second guess myself when I'm speaking because of that experience of, of trying to, to moderate your, your, yeah. And so I can understand how, you know, being in your head for 10 days by yourself and trying to moderate how you think can drive you around the bend. You yeah. can find yourself second guessing every thought you have <laughs> trying to get rid of it, you know, and, and flagellating yourself for every errant thought that runs across your eyes. So, um, yeah, very dangerous, you know, handle with care. Yeah. Which look to be, to be fair, like when we talk about the, boilerplate meditation mm. courses that people are taking the the, the risks are almost in almost zero I, I would say pretty much zero with some of this stuff yeah well introducing it gradually particularly the, the doing a five is, minute ten yeah. minute 
thing. I think the risk is a zero. Well, I think the risk is zero mainly because most people aren't doing it, aren't, well, aren't sure. mindful. They're aren't just doing, doing it properly. They're, they're doing yeah. breath technique. Yeah. Right. So my conclusion from all this was in terms of how I'm going to modify my life and my practice is if I'm, if I'm doing meditating, if I'm meditating and trying to achieve mindfulness for the intrinsic experience of the mindfulness itself, mm. um, and I'm looking for that sort of unearthing of, of the mind and, and consciousness. Mm. And if it's really hard to work out when you've achieved it versus when you're faking it, <laughs> you know, and it can take years of silent retreat and all this kind of stuff with all the complications and it's got the same adverse effects as LSD. I may as well just drop LSD and just cut straight, like just cut to the cut chase, to the right? Chase, yeah. Like if the end result is the same and LSD is one of the safest drugs we have, why not just do the LSD and just forget about just spending hours and hours and hours staring at my wall at the back of my eyelids waiting for something to happen? Uh, well, the, the, the good Lord, um, the good Lord Sam Harris has something to say about this, which is the, um, if meditation is the equivalent of putting up a sail, yeah. then LSD is strapping yourself to a rocket and it essentially could be potentially achieving the same goal. But <laughs> give me the rocket. Yeah, give me the rocket. Like, what, this um, is, dude, this is 2019. We don't sail anymore. <laughs> yeah. We use rockets. That's what we do. I, I, want, I want the SpaceX version of, of mindfulness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, want the Elon, I want Elon Musk's uh, flavor. You got any other conclusions? Any other, has, it, has this no, modified how you're going to be approaching either Tai Chi or your search for something or the results you expect? Because no. you and I are very different in why we would do this and our interest in it, I think, right? Yes, I think so. Um, no, it hasn't really changed. I think I think my... my yeah, I don't, I don't think it's really changed the way I'm going to approach doing my, my own mindful practice. But it, mm-hmm. it has kind of led me to believe that I want to take it from the uh, movement-based stuff into the more seated focusing on the breath Focused. to try to like bring it bring it down because i think when mm-hmm. i first started to do the focusing on the breath stuff yeah. it, it actually made me more anxious because mm-hmm. of the maybe the claustrophobic nature of it but now i'm getting more used to the you know adding a bit of movement yeah. relaxes me a bit and now i'm going to try to just bring it in to just try, seated, try starting lotus. with a little bit of seated seated meditation and try yeah. to um bring it in that way but look not, nothing in the studies the study that we looked at here precludes meditation being an incredibly useful and beneficial practice. And I think most or fun, anecdotes, or, right? well, fun. I don't think it's fun. I think it can be quite like, I've had experiences that I thought were quite enjoyable, at least in retrospect. I find it, I find it great afterwards. Having meditated is really a wonderful place to be. I've had, I've but, had moments where in the, during the process of the meditating, I found myself to be really enjoying where I was. And what was I'm happening. not there. I'm not there. I, I want to be, but, but I I'm haven't, not. I, I, that's a long time ago. Yeah. And my mind is much busier than it was back then. <laughs> well, we're actually going to be talking to someone that does do a lot of meditation daily. Yeah. And he'll be coming up shortly. In fact, we might split this into a bit of a part one, part two. Uh, maybe that's a good idea. And are we going to try and convince Dylan to stop meditating? Is that our goal? <laughs> that's it. Because we're going to do a crossover trial. He's now going to do six years without meditating. And, and we'll then see we'll see where a... he ends yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned, J.I. listeners. This is real science. That's it. If you if you like what you're listening to, we are um, on the web, Jeremy's Iron Podcast. Just Google us. Um, or else you can drop us a line at Jeremy's Iron Podcast at gmail.com, something like that. Yep. We've got a Facebook as well. Jeremy's also Iron. available on uh, Compact Disc. On CD. On CD. Yeah. And mini disc. So if you if you do want a copy of this episode, if you have friends who are not online. Yep. Right into our PO box. And we will send you we will send you a hard copy of, of which of the episode. Yeah. Yeah. 
So a navigable hard copy that they can put onto their Discman mm. or should we do cassettes? We should do cassettes. And if, if you've got any other um, recommendations for show ideas, hit us up yep. on our Facebook and or Gmail. We ultimately have very few ideas. <laughs> we spend too much time being mindful. Yeah. And uh, yeah.